0: Is Jesus really the only way to God? How can a loving God save some and not others? What would Jesus say to my LGBTI friends? Can I trust the Bible? How can a good God allow suffering? How can I find God's will for my life? Can I lose my faith and what can I do to grow it? If God is sovereign, do we actually have free will? Can women lead in the church? How would a Christian approach sex and dating?
1: You're listening to the Caroline Springs Anglican Podcast. All right, thank you, Jimmy. Thanks for your prayers. If I haven't met you, my name's Jonathan. I'm one of the pastors here. I say Jonathan, everyone calls me Jono. It's been that way since I was in grade three. I've got no idea why. It's just the Lord wills it. All right, so if you've got uh, that Bible, um, you got out while Albert was reading it for us, pick it up again. Turn back to John 14, we will be in a couple of different passages, you'll notice over these 10 weeks, whereas we normally like to preach just verse by verse through whole books of the Bible, for this series, because we're going to be answering specific questions, we'll be jumping around a little bit, Um, but I encourage you to pick up the Bible and follow along with me, because one thing we believe for sure is that uh, this here is not the fount of all wisdom, but rather that the Bible is God's revealed truth, okay? Okay. And we can trust it. We believe that uh, he has spoken and um, he's been gracious to give it to us in the pages of the Bible. If you don't own a Bible, then take that one with you. That's our gift to you this morning, all right? Um, in fact, during this series, about halfway through, I think we're going to be answering one of your questions, which was, can I trust the Bible? We talk, hear a lot about the Bible and we tell... Uh, tell you to receive it as God's truth, but do we have good reason to believe that it is God's truth? That's one of the questions we'll be answering, along with nine other really good questions. And this morning, we're going to be looking at this question, as you know, is Jesus really the only way to God? So I know that this isn't the case for everybody here, but I, I had a really good childhood growing up. I had Two parents who loved each other and who loved us. Four kids, 13 acres to run around in. Um, nourishing, loving family growing up. We went to a church that loved us, invested in us, that preached from the Bible and taught us the gospel. Um, my parents sacrificed everything to send us kids to a really good school where we would get a good education And then then when I was in year 11, I started going out with a girl who was in university, and she had a lot of time on her hands because she was an art student. (laughs) You know it's true. And all of a sudden, I just didn't really want to go to church anymore. And I didn't really want to go to school anymore. And I didn't go to either of them very much. And I didn't really want to spend much time with my family anymore. And this, this person became kind of all-consuming in my life. And then for the next two years, from the age 17 to 19, I just, I, I just went off the rails. I know many of us have had this similar experience, right? Just so on the rails for my life up until then, and then just so off the rails, and I accumulated this group of guys who encouraged me to go further off the rails, and I was kind of the ringleader of this ragtag bunch of tearaways, and they loved me for it. They loved the fact that I could get in trouble with the cops and it wouldn't faze me. They loved the fact that I could put away more beers than anyone else. They loved the fact that I would lead them on this, this path of destruction And so it was a cycle of affirmation and reaffirmation for me that this was my new path, this was my new life. People liked me for this, being this way. And then when I was 19, I did know one thing. I knew I had to get away from all of that. It it was cool in the moment, but after you start living that way for a while, there's an accumulation of guilt that happens. At least there was for me. And it became so heavy that I couldn't bear it anymore. And my response uh, was not to go back to my loving, merciful Father in heaven, but to try and just get away from the situation. So I went overseas and I went to the US and I lived and I worked there for a while and it was there that I became a Christian. It was there that I was converted in quite dramatic circumstances at this very tumultuous point in my life. I, for the first time, bowed the knee to Jesus and I, and I accepted by faith all that he had done for me. I found that what Jesus said in the story of the lost son was true. I found that when I turned away from the drinking and prostitutes and feeding the pigs and came home to my father, even though I only expected to be a slave in his fields, he turned around and put a ring on my finger and a robe on my back and killed the fattened calf and called a party for me. It was incredible. That's the God that I found, merciful, gracious, loving, in spite of all that I was and had done. And so when I came back to Australia, I had then been a Christian in a very nurturing Christian environment, a full-on environment. The Christians that are around were completely sold out for Jesus. They, they, was just all, they made all of life all about him. And I, and I lived in that environment for some months, about six, seven, eight months. And when I came back, my friends found a very different me than the one they sent off very hungover, eight months before. And listen, there was no... Oh, I didn't have the internet. There was no Facebook. I wasn't emailing them. It cost me about 20 bucks to call them for five minutes, and I wasn't going to do that. So they, they just didn't know that this thing had happened to me. And so when I shared with them the fact that I had become a Christian, they were really worried. I could just see the disappointment on their face. Like, oh, man... They were really worried that I wasn't going to be the person that I was when I left, and the truth is that I wasn't the person that I was when I left. I had been born again. And I remember very clearly my friend James asking me this question. He said, and sincerely, he said, so, Smithy, are you going to be celibate for the rest of your life? we laugh because it's kind of a silly question. But if you understand the experience that was driving the question, it becomes fully understandable. So he had grown up in a Catholic church-going, nominal kind of church-going environment. And when I came back from overseas, I told my friends, I'm going to go into ministry. This is not just a thing I had kind of latched onto for a while. This is like, this is my life now. And so, in his mind, what I was saying to him was that I was going to become a priest. I was going to become a Catholic priest, and that meant being single and being celibate. And that, to him, just blew his mind. Like, why? I was like, I hope not. So The point is, I think, when, when, we, when we receive questions from people... The best thing we can do is to understand what is motivating and driving the question. It's not simply about answering the question on its own terms, but rather understanding what's motivating the question. That's how you become a good teacher. That's how you become a good friend. And so in this series, what we want to do, and I did speak to some of you who were concerned that this seemed like we were going to kind of be... Come, coming from somewhere up here and, and kind of making declarations on the, the, here are the you know 10 commandments um, in answer to your 10 questions and that's not going to be our posture. What we want to do in this series is try and understand the experiences that are motivating these sincere questions that have been asked. And that way I think we can make good sense of them and that way we can honor them And our intention in this series is to give the best representation, not only of what we believe God's view of this is, but also of the view of the questioner. So when it comes to this question, is Jesus really the only way to God? I think the experience that's driving that question, that sincere question, is this. The experience of most of us is that we live in a multicultural, multi-faith, pluralistic, that is, you know, a a culture of many religions and worldviews. We live in that culture. We know people who sincerely hold views that are different to ours, who sincerely believe things that are different to our beliefs who worship gods that are different to the God that we worship. And out of that experience of knowing people who sincerely hold these beliefs, we ask the question, can we really say that we have the truth? Can we really say that Jesus is the only way to God? And so I think the The dominant belief in our society, and it may even be the dominant belief for Christians who haven't given this a whole lot of thought, but certainly the dominant view in society of those who would welcome a pluralism, who would welcome a a multi-faith universe, who would welcome the idea of of living in a society where different views and beliefs are to be honoured and given equal rights and privileges, the dominant view is this. At the end of the day, all paths lead to God. All paths lead to God. And I think this is the product of some very um, important forces that we need to understand before we get into this question. So first of all, we have that experience. I know people and respect people and love people who hold views different to mine. How then can I say that my view is exclusively true? That is, my view is right and theirs is wrong. And that coupled together with, in, the, in at least the last generation or two, a very persuasive influx of Eastern philosophy, Eastern religion, Eastern thought. So if you look at the eastern religions and, the, and eastern philosophy, you'll notice that there is this thought generally held that, yes, all paths lead to God. In one of the important holy books, the, uh, the Bhavaga Gita, Bhavaga Gita, yes, um, it says as much. It says, all paths lead to God. That's where we get that phrase, Bhavaga Gita. So you have this... Experience of multiculturalism and pluralism, you have an influx of Eastern thoughts and philosophies and religions, and you have, in Australia, most of all, an egalitarian democratic society, right? Egalitarian just means everyone should have a fair go. Everyone should have equal access to rights and privileges. If you've never been overseas, you may take that for granted, but you only have to go overseas, even to a place like England that we see, very similar to ours, is actually much less egalitarian than our society. Something that struck me when I lived in the UK for a little while was that the class system is alive and well over there. You have a very defined class system that we just don't have here. Egalitarianism has swept that away for the most part. And so you have these three forces coming together, and the most natural thing for an average Aussie to say is, well, they're all the same, really. All paths lead to God. So I've got my whiteboard here, and I want to draw a couple of diagrams just to explain this a little better, okay? I think this diagram, I hope you can see this. This is terrible for the people listening on the podcast, but what I've drawn here is a mountain. It's a mountain, all right? It's even got snow. And so I think, broadly speaking, the idea is this. Yes, religions start in very different places, four different religions there, they all have very different beginnings. They come from different cultures, different parts of the world. They, they have different buildings that they worship in, and different books, and different ideas about God. But ultimately, all of them end up at the same summit. Here is the truth that all religions ultimately end up in. Here is the different paths to the one God. One Sufi philosopher said that there, are, there is one light, but many lampstands. There are these different lampstands that we call religions, but the one light gives light to them all. There are different paths, but they all end up at the same summit. Is that clear? All paths lead to God in this understanding. I can think of at least three problems with this. View the first problem is that though people in their outwardly th- outward thinking like this picture because they think it gives honor to all religions, you know they all they're all valid. They're all equally truthful. They think that it gives honour to these religions. You only have to speak to people of those religions to find out that it actually undermines their religion. What you're doing when you try and draw these different and disparate ideas together is that you are actually reducing their integrity. It's a reductionist way of thinking. You actually take away the significance of each of them and try and combine it into one whole. And in so doing, you dishonor the belief by trying to honor it by forcing it into one summit. And so it actually does the opposite of what most people would genuinely want to achieve by holding this view The other reason that it doesn't work, the problem I have with it, is that these arrows going up into the same direction don't give an accurate picture of the reality, right? These different religions hold different views, and not just different views that can be molded into one view, but they hold contradictory views. They hold irreconcilable views and therefore you can't bring them together you just they're like oil and water that you can't mix them they're irreconcilable for the christian god is trinity father son and holy spirit for the muslim that is heresy god is one the christian says yeah we mean he's one but in three persons the muslim says god is one Hindu says, God is all. There are many gods. The Buddha says, we don't really have a personal God. And so even at the most fundamental level, you can't reconcile these different faiths. And in trying to reconcile them, you rob them of their distinctiveness, and not just their distinctiveness, but their primary and fundamental tenets. So you dishonor the belief and you dishonor the believers' when you try and wrap them all up like this. And the last problem I have with it is the most fundamental one. And that is, if you ask each of these religions, what must I do to be saved? Each one of them will give you a very different answer. And the reason that's the most fundamental problem is because that question is the most fundamental question that we can ask: What must I do to be saved? In his book *A Brief History of Thought*, which I recommend you get, it's a little paperback but very, very helpful for those of us who aren't great philosophers. The French philosopher Luc Ferry, uh, who he's not a Christian. Uh, but he makes this assertion. He says, the most fundamental question that humanity has been challenged by and tried to answer is, what must I do to be saved? He says, the reality of death, which is a reality that every human faces in all of human history, is the most fundamental problem that we have to overcome. And when facing the reality of death, the question that we ask and have always asked through the ages is, how can I be saved? How can I be delivered from this inevitable situation? And he makes the point as an, as an atheist philosopher, he makes the point that every great philosophy and religion of all time has been seeking to answer this question, what must I do to be saved? How can I be saved? It's a question of salvation. And if you ask each of the major religions of the world that question, they will all give you very different answers. Even between Protestant and Catholic, you will get different answers that can't be reconciled. If they're Orthodox believers. And so I want to posit a different diagram for us. I think this is more accurate. And it's just like the first diagram, but it's inverted. So if you're listening on audio, I'm now doing an upside-down mountain, which helpfully kind of looks like the sun rising between two different mountains. All right. And in this diagram... We need new whiteboard markers. All right, in this diagram... You've got religion, sorry, you've got religion one, two, three, four. We have a common starting point. The common starting point of every religion and every philosophy is seeking to answer the question, what must I do to be saved? In the reality of life, the brokenness of life, death, disease, the inevitability of my own mortality, we're all asking the same question, how am I saved from this body of death? We have a common starting point, but our destinations are all very different. Common beginnings Very different destinations. Is that making sense? Now, this makes much more sense of what we see around us, and it makes much more sense of what you'll hear if you actually take the time to engage with people of different beliefs. This is what you're going to see. It's the opposite of the pop view that all roads lead to God, all paths lead to God. Now the question is, the obvious question that's begging to be answered is, if all of these paths are seeking the same answer, which one is right? Right? They can't all be right. They're going in completely different directions. They can't all be right. They have contradictory answers. So the question is, Which one is right? Which one is true? Which is our question this morning. Is Jesus really the only way to God? The question is not, is there one that's right, excluding all others? We can see clearly they lead in completely different directions. The question isn't, Is one of them right and the rest are wrong? The question is, which one is right? Which one will lead us to God? Which one will give us the salvation that we so desperately desire? Which one is the answer to the fundamental question of all humanity for as far back as we can see? And if our question is, is Jesus really the only way to God? Then it's only right that we should ask Jesus what he claims for himself. And so, for the rest of our time here this morning, I want us to ask Jesus, who do you say that you are? Who do you say that you are? The philosopher John Hick, who has been very, very fundamental in the emergence of the pluralistic idea of religion, that all paths lead to God, and who calls himself a Quaker, a Christian of some kind, has said that he doesn't believe Jesus claimed anything for himself. He doesn't believe that Jesus ever said that he was God. He believes that Jesus is a prophet in the line of many prophets from many different religions, who all claim to be guides on the path to God. He says Jesus is like the prophet Muhammad. Muhammad doesn't claim to be God himself. He claims to be a prophet of God. He claims to be a guide on the way, someone who will reveal the truth to us about Allah. All religions have these, mostly men, who are, though themselves not gods, claim to be guides for us, someone who will hold a light to our path and show us the way to the truth. But Jesus isn't like that. Jesus doesn't claim merely to be a guide along the path. Jesus doesn't claim merely to show us a little bit of what God is like. Jesus doesn't claim to help us along the way. Jesus claims to be the destination. That is profoundly different to every other prophet. Profoundly different. And so when you speak to your Muslim friends and they say, yes, we honor Jesus, he is is one of our prophets, you can say to them with confidence, you don't yet understand what Jesus claimed for himself. He didn't claim to be a guide along the path. He claimed to be the destination itself. Jesus said, I am. That short Self designation was so sacred and holy to the Jews. It was the way that God revealed himself in the Old Testament. He said, I am. That is, I just am. I am uncreated. No one sustains me. I'm before and after the Alpha and Omega. I am that I am. That's how he revealed himself to Moses, and the Jews found that to be such a sacred thing that they wouldn't even speak it in case they mispronounced it. They wouldn't even write it in case they misspelled it. And then Jesus steps forth into human history and says, I am. So let's... Let's stop trying to force him into the mold of those other prophets that we know well. He doesn't fit. Let's see what he said for himself. Let's go back to John 14. John 14. I'll just read one to seven. I've been a Christian now 16 years and I read this this week, and I just put the Bible down and went... Do not let your hearts be troubled, he says. He knows he's about to die. He knows he's about to leave his disciples. who love him and depend on him. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you and if I go and prepare a place for you I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am you know the place where I'm going thomas said to him lord we don't know the way we don't know where you are going so how can we know the way jesus answered i am I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Jesus never really claimed anything for himself. He was just a prophet. From now on, you know God and have seen God because you know me and have seen me. No one else claims that. You go through the great philosophies and religions of the world. Nobody claims what Jesus claims. I'm not merely the path, I am the destination. If you've seen me, you've seen God. This is why Jesus was hated and killed. So often we say, well, why Jesus is so innocent, he was so great, he was healing everybody, he was was such a superstar, why did they kill him? This is why they killed him. This is why they hated him precisely because he claimed to be God. If, he, if you take that away from him, I don't know why they killed him. John 10, 22 to 33, look on the screen. This is what he says, and this is what happened. Then came the festival of dedication at Jerusalem. It was winter. And Jesus was in the temple courts, walking in Solomon's colonnade. The Jews who were there gathered around him saying, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you do not believe. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me. So not just my words, but my works. But you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life. And they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. There's the answer to the question plaguing humanity for all time. How am I going to be saved from death? I give them eternal life. and They shall never die. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Again, his Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus said to them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? We are not stoning you for any good work, they replied, but for blasphemy because you, a mere man, claim to be God. That's why they killed him. Stones in their hands, trembling. It's because you say you're God that we're going to kill you. Mark 14, same again. Then the high priest stood up before them. This is in Jesus' mock trial before they kill him. Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? I am, oh, there's that term again, I am, said Jesus, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him as worthy of death. That's why they killed him. Because he said, I'm not the path, I'm the destination. Finally, in John 5, again, for this reason they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So is Jesus really the only way to God? First, we need to see, well, can we make all religions kind of fit into the one goal? Can we make them all paths that lead to the one destination? Well, No, we can't. They're irreconcilable. They're contradictory and we have to undermine them and dishonor them in order to make them fit. Actually, they all have a common beginning and then diverge from the very beginning in very, very different directions. And so the question is, is there one that will give us what we're looking for, what we're searching for, for the truth, the true answer to our question, how can I be saved? And if the question is, is Jesus really the only way to God, we need to ask him, is that what you claim for yourself? Well, the Jews asked him repeatedly, and his answer was, I am. I am. I am the way and the truth and the life. And when the Jews condemned him for blasphemy, they were doing the right thing. Now, don't get me wrong, it was the greatest sin that has ever been committed to kill the Son of God, but they were being consistent. They didn't try and sweep it under the cover like John Hick and so many modern day philosophers and theologians, even Christian theologians do. He never really said that about himself. He was just a good man. He said some cool stuff. No, they knew the truth. They knew exactly what he was saying. They knew that he was claiming to be God in human flesh. So then the question becomes, are we going to believe him? Jesus said to the Jews, remember, you've asked me and I've told you. You've asked me, am I the Messiah? I've told you, yes. You don't believe because you're not my sheep. You're not my people. The question for us is, are we Jesus' people? Are we his sheep? Is he our shepherd? Will he give us eternal life? Can anyone ever snatch us out of his hand? Or are we his people, believing his words? And so we're left with something of a trilemma. This is what I want to end on. This trilemma has been discussed and expounded for many, many centuries. We can probably trace something of it back to the early church fathers, but it was majorly popularized by C.S. Lewis. And his argument was this. Everyone in the Church of England in the, the last century when he was around in the 20th century was trying to do what John Hick is doing now. They're trying to say, well, Jesus, what he did, he just never claimed to be God. He was just really a good guy. Can't we all agree on him being a good, he was a, he was a moral teacher. He was, he's like Gandhi. And he said, that's nonsense. It's patronizing nonsense to say Jesus was a good guy. Because if he said the things that he said about being God in human flesh, then he wasn't a good moral person. He was either a liar, which means he's not a good person, a good moral teacher, or a lunatic, which means we don't want to follow what he's telling us because he's crazy. C.S. Lewis said quite colorfully, he's crazy like a man who thinks he's a poached egg. Or he's the Lord. That's our trilemma this morning. Is Jesus really the truth, the way, the truth, and the life? Is he really the only way to God? Well, it comes down to whether we can trust what he said about himself. Now, is he a liar? We discussed this last week because I talked about the fact that I was talking to a guy who was saying, you know, it sucks that we all have to take time off work for Easter when it's just a bunch of made-up fairy tales. And I talked at length about why the resurrection of Jesus is a reasonable, logical, trustworthy, historical event So you can go back to last week and Learn a bit more about that if you like on our website. You can find that message. But we use similar lines of reasoning to come to the conclusion that no, Jesus wasn't a liar. There is nothing in the historical record that would suggest that he was any kind of liar. In fact, quite the opposite is true. He seems to be the most consistent person that there has ever been. He was the kind of guy who went around and the Sermon on the Mount said, You know, love your enemies. Bless those that curse you. Pray for those that hate you. Which is something that I can say from up here, right? Easy. Point five, love your enemies. Let's pray. Right? It's one thing to chuck that in a sermon, it's another to actually live it out. On the cross, Experiencing excruciating pain put to death in a farce as an innocent man and he calls down from the cross Father forgive them they don't know what they're doing the most consistent man this is no liar on top of that what bunch of morons would the disciples be, ten of whom died excruciating deaths for their belief in Jesus, being God in human flesh, what bunch of morons would die for a lie? No one does that. So the liar thing we can discount, just a purely logical ground. The lunatic one. Now, this has a little bit more going for it, I think, because we have seen through the centuries there have been lunatics who thought that they were the Messiah, right? I'm old enough to remember watching on our little TV, about this big, turning the dial to channel nine, which is one of three channels, right, and seeing Waco, Texas, David Koresh, the compound on fire. You have these lunatics that come along from time to time and say, I'm the chosen one, follow me. And they tend to be very charismatic and very magnetic and there are certain kinds of people with certain kinds of wiring that just follow them to death. It's always to death. Or the whole thing falls apart and these people need major counseling for the rest of their lives. Cults come and go, but that's the thing. They come and they go. There will be more that come and more that go. Sooner or later, this great leader gets found out or he asks everyone to drink the Kool-Aid, right? These things happen. But is that consistent with what we know about Jesus? Does he appear to be some kind of crazed megalomaniac? I don't think so. seems to be very, very sane to me. You might have someone who's crazy enough to gather a following, but that following does not change human history forever. It comes and it goes comes and it goes. But Christianity has changed history forever. Can it do that based on the ravings of a lunatic? I don't think so. So if he's not a liar and he's not a lunatic, the other option is that he's actually who he says he is. He actually is, I am. In the Gospel of John, he says, before Moses was, I am. Before that guy who lived thousands of years before me was, I am. I am eternal. I am preexistent. I am the creator and sustainer of all things. So, Jesus isn't going to let us get away with this nonsense. Well, he's just a good guy. He's just a nice teacher. He's just a benign prophet. He doesn't let us do that. He forces us into this corner. He forces us to choose. We can dismiss him as a deceiver on the same level as Satan himself, the father of lies. We can dismiss him as a madman, akin to a man who thinks he's a poached egg. Or we can bow down before him and say, yes, we believe you are the way, the truth, the life, singular, exclusive, the way, the truth, the life. Now, obviously, every week in this series, there is going to be like you're going to see the tip of the iceberg, and there's going to be so much left unsaid. And just in me right now, all of these other things, and this, and what about this and this, right? And that's not the purpose of this talk. We can't get to everything, but I do encourage you to text your questions in because we're going to do a little live Q&A here, me and Jimmy. We're going to make some attempt to answer your questions.
0: So the, so the first question, what about the fourth option, that Jesus is a legend? I'm guessing that it's not just like, "Oh, he's a legend, mate. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus is legend. Yeah.
1: As in like that it's made up. Yeah, yeah um, so, uh, yeah, the, C.S. Lewis actually addressed this fourth option in a later paper after he posited this trilemma there are a lot of people trying to break it Um, and so one option which to be fair to him he was speaking in terms of what Jesus had said this fourth option is Jesus a legend isn't really to do with what Jesus said but rather about his followers so could Jesus followers have just sort of got together and said let's we're going to fool the world and so we're going to make up this story about this Jesus guy and um we went into this a lot last week, actually, on Easter Sunday. We went into this whole kind of idea could the disciples have just made up this thing about the resurrection? So go back there on our website, you can find that um, message if you like. Um, but it's, it's almost implausible that, um, that that is the origin of Christianity, that it's a, it's a myth. Cecil so Lewis was actually a, a scholar at Oxford in, um, in mythology. And he said, I've studied mythology my whole life, and when I read the Gospels, I see nothing of the myth in this. It reads as a historical account. Um, and so uh, for, you, there's a bunch of reasons why the, the legend thing doesn't hold any water either.
0: No. Good? Uh, I can say a couple of things. Um, and I think, I think it's really helpful when you actually consider what scholars have said so like even Bart Ehrman, who holds to this theory that it's also made up, believes that Jesus was a real person who lived and was killed. So even the most hardened scholar um, would, would, is really finds it really hard to say, no, Jesus was just made up, he didn't exist. And so the claims that are really under fire, the resurrection and the miraculous accounts, and it seems really fanciful that Jesus' followers would from, go from scared in a house... To dying for their faith, like counting it as joy to be suffer to be to endure suffering, that seems very fanciful. Um, so for me, the myth legend doesn't really stack up either. Mm. Awesome question two. What about other religions that make similar exclusive truth claims? I, I can start this if you want to go. Um, for many religions that actually to assess their truth claims is very, very difficult because most of them aren't falsifiable. That means that you can say this is either true or it's not. Because uh, for Buddha, he received a private revelation. So I can't tell whether that was true or not. So for Muhammad, he also received a private revelation. For Hindus, they've got millions of gods and millions of ways that those gods came into being. Um, there's really only three religions that actually have falsifiable historical accounts of how they came into being, and that's Christianity, Judaism, and Mormonism. Now, Mormonism has been roundly discouraged and uh, disparaged by historians as having most of its history is made up and fanciful. There's very rare, I don't know, any historians who say, yeah, that seems legit. Most of them are like, what was Joseph Smith smoking? Um, it's, it's very difficult. Now, Christians believe that Judaism was on the money. Now, the, the problem for anyone else making exclusive truth claims from any other religion is that Jesus lived a public life. He had a public death. He, the appeal that Paul makes in 1 Corinthians 15 is that from that, people saw him publicly. And so Christianity puts its head on the chopping block and says, if you want to disprove me, go ahead and do it. If you disprove that Jesus was alive, that he died, that he was resurrected, it falls on its sword. And so for me, I think that makes a very strong claim. Other religions may make uh, exclusive truth claims, but I don't think they're falsifiable. We can't actually know whether they're true or not. We just have to say, take Buddha or Muhammad's word. Whereas with Jesus, we go, okay, he said who he is. Let's, let's find out. What does the history say? I think it stacks up. Do you want to add anything? That's good.
1: All right. Oh, just to say, actually, just, just to say, I think, and this will probably pervade each week of, the, of this that we're talking about, but mainly this week, because I think we live in a culture that is, is scared of exclusive truth claims. And we're scared because we don't, we don't want to appear arrogant or bigoted, that's the buzzword. Um... But really, whether you claim Christianity to be true, or Islam to be true, or um, materialistic atheism to be true, uh, everyone's making a truth claim. John Hick, who says, all paths lead to God, that is just as much a truth claim as the one who says, Jesus is the only one of God. Um, The story about... uh, I won't go into that. But, yeah, but... but, um, so they're all making exclusive truth claims. If I say 2 plus 2 equals 5, I'm making an exclusive truth claim. I'm saying it doesn't equal 4. And so, so we just need to be aware of that. Everyone believes something, and it's to the exclusion of something else. Uh, we, we have this myth of uh, you know, each to their own relative, relativistic universe, but it doesn't actually exist. No one can actually live in that world. Um, yeah, so some more thoughts. Even even the person who would halt relativism and
0: say that there are no exclusive truth claims and there is no objective truth makes an exclusive objective claim by stating that. <laughs> so Sweet. Uh, question three: If Jesus is the only way, does that mean that those who have died without knowing him have not been saved?
1: Thanks. Um, the question was, if, if Jesus is the only way, um, d- does that mean people who haven't heard about Jesus aren't saved? Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. That's a good question. That's probably a whole other, like, hard question, series question. Um, Paul says something really important in Romans 10. And he's getting at the importance of... Sharing the good news, and so he says, um, Romans ten nine: If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you'll be saved. And then later in chapter uh, verse fourteen of the same chapter, but how are they to call on Him in whom they have not believed, and how are they to believe in Him whom in whom they have never heard, and how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. And so he presents for us a picture of the universe whereby without someone sharing the good news, people can't be saved. That's the logical flow of his argument. And so we are... um, Christians are exclusivists in that we say, unless someone hears and believes the gospel, they can't be saved. That's the question that everyone's been asking. How can I be saved? We say, well, it's by hearing and believing. Um, However, though we're exclusivists, I don't think many of us would want to say that God cannot move outside the bounds of that. We wouldn't want to say that God can't, by his own miraculous intervention, save people in his own way. And so there's a, there's, a, there's a lot happening now in the Middle East with Muslims who are having dreams about Jesus and are being open to the gospel through that means. Now, I would say in almost every case, God is sending someone to be this man with beautiful feet or woman with beautiful feet to share the good news, and it's there that that it clicks, but it was initiated by supernatural means. That's very common these days. Um, We could say the same about infants that die in infancy. Um, And from a reform perspective, so this is not just, this isn't Christians in general, but from from the reform tradition, and we're going to pick up on this next week when we talk about why does God save some and not others. Um, We believe that because God has chosen people who he is pursuing to save he saves them through these means through them hearing the gospel and responding to it but we can be confident therefore that everyone god has called to be saved will be saved and so um, that becomes a different problem for us in that case it doesn't get rid of the problem but it becomes a different one Um, it's not so much well they missed out and it's not fair but it's No, God will reveal himself to those who he has called. So, yeah.
0: Can I I just add, like, Jonas started this whole uh, sermon tonight saying that we actually want to pick up on the question behind the question. And I think the question behind this question is, doesn't that seem a little unfair? Like, I know friends who are Buddhists and Muslims and atheists, and they seem pretty good people. Doesn't it seem unfair that God wouldn't save them as well? Like, if the only difference is me believing in him and going to church? Like, and the Bible just doesn't have a category for questions like that. Like when Job asks God a similar question, he says, "What does the clay have to say to the potter?" Like the, the question around biblical like fairness isn't the Bible doesn't really say much about that because it's sort of the wrong question coming from what the Bible's stating. The question that the Bible's asking is, "Why does a righteous and holy God allow us to exist at all?" <laughs> um, like that's sort of the question that the Bible's coming with us. God is righteous and holy and loving and good and therefore abhors evil and the problem that we all have is that I am evil. So how do, how does that how is that fair? That's sort of the question the Bible's getting at. And why do I exist? Well, it's because God is good and merciful and loving towards me. And so there's never going to be anyone who comes before God who is able to say I'm good and God says, "Oh, fair enough." Like The Bible's profound answer is no one is good, no one desires God, and in fact the creator of all things that is and will be, like we've rejected him. So the question of whether this is unfair or not, it is. It is unfair that we continue to exist, but God is good and loving anyway. Mm. Uh, And the final question, we know that Jesus is the only way to the Father, but how is he really God? Or is this another question?
1: Um, so the question is, he's the way to God, but he is also God himself. Or is he that? How? How, How is, is that? that? <laughs> well, this is, the, this is the, one, one of the profound truths of Christianity is that... Um, is that God is not just, he's not the deist God who spins the world to an existence and then disappears. He's not the God of Islam who governs all things but is impersonal. He doesn't commune with us. He doesn't converse with us. He doesn't meet with us. This is, no, God, Christian view is God came into human history. God became man. And he did it out of his great love for us. God so loved the world he sent his only son so that everyone would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life and so it's out of his great love that he actually becomes a human being why because uh, no human being could save the human race it had to be god Uh, but it had to be a human being in order to be a representative of us and so it needed to be a god man and that's who um, the gospels reveals jesus to be so yes he is the way and he is also the destination he's the sacrifice and the one being sacrificed to he's He's man and God. That's just let that blow your mind. Yeah.
0: A really helpful uh, passage to dwell on is John 1, where uh, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the actual uh, Greek word for word <laughs> is logos, which is this all-encompassing creator who holds all things in order, who holds all things together. And so that's, that's for the Greeks. And uh, John makes the audacious claim that that Logos is Jesus, who has existed before creation, who without nothing was... Cre- uh, I can't even remember how, how the English goes, but like basically his, his assumption is nothing was created without Jesus. Um, and so the Bible consistently just states that Jesus is God all the time, um, and Jesus makes the same claims. Um, so how that happens, I don't know. <laughs> We could go into long discussions about the hypostatic union and how it is that Jesus is both God and man and all that kind of stuff, but the Bible just sort of says it is. Mm. All good? That was it. Thank you.